Have a service, project, or product you need to get the word out on? Call 901-800-7608 or email info at theoamnetwork.com and ask about our podcast sponsorship packages. The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. What's good, y'all? I'm Chris Milam, and I'm a songer-singwriter from Memphis, Tennessee. I'm joined in the studio today by my legendary adversary, producer Gil. We are knocking out an intro real quick today before Gil hops on a plane to Phoenix for a long weekend. What is Gil doing in Phoenix for a long weekend? I'm glad you asked. He's going to Hell City, y'all. He's going to the Hell City Tattoo Festival. I know that you're brimming with questions. I don't even have any answers for you. That's all I know. I hope he makes it back in one piece. As for me, I'll be in Memphis this weekend. I'm just going to lay low, watch some Fast and Furious, maybe grill some chicken kebabs, power rank TV theme songs, DuckTales, Family Matters, Succession. I have never been more alone. You're listening to The Mix. It's an hour-long conversation with fellow artists where I ask one simple question. What songs mean the most to you? My guest today is the one, the only, Corey Brannon, y'all. This was a special conversation, and we'll get there soonly. But first, I smell John Travolta. It's shameless plug time. Let's take a look at the merch table. If y'all like the show, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review. Just click five stars. Just do it. Just do it. Peer pressure. Everyone's doing it, nerd. Also, uh, in all seriousness, join the conversation. Uh, my email is chris at chrismilam.com. You can find me on social media at chrismilam. I'm very easy to find. Um, for those of you listening, joining in for the first time, music, specifically songs, are my life's passion. When I'm not writing or singing them, I'm typically talking about them. So the whole point of this podcast is the conversation. Please, holler any time. I'd love to hear from you. What is that I see on the merch table? Also, it's an ad read. Y'all, I choose only local mom and pop sponsors for this podcast. That's why the mix is brought to you by audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash OAM. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Now, let's talk about Corey Brandon. Corey Brandon is five albums into a career that began with Rolling Stone anointing him the next great American songwriter. For once, they weren't wrong. He's a contemporary of heralded songwriters like Josh Ritter, Craig Finn, Connor O'Burst, and his longtime friend and showmate, Jason Isbell. To my ears, he's that generation's greatest lyricist. My relationship with Corey's music began in 2002 when I was still a teenager. I heard a Memphis artist was getting next prime, even next Dylan buzz. I was ready to hate him. That lasted all of 30 seconds into The Hell You Say, his breathless and breathtaking debut album. Some of my first ever concerts were catching Corey and then-baby band Lucero at the old high tone. Some of my first doomed relationships were ominously soundtracked by Corey's songs. When my brother married my sister-in-law, they asked me to sing Corey's darkly romantic duet, Easy, at the wedding. And in a random but fitting turn, my album Kids These Days came out April 7, 2017 the same day as Corey's Adios. 
Guess who got the Pitchfork review? And what I'm trying to say is this. No artist has impacted my adult life more than Corey Brannon. One of my luckiest breaks was discovering his music at the moment I was just starting to think about maybe one day, possibly, making my own. For the first time, great artists weren't abstract. They were singing down the street. Astonishing songs weren't magically falling from heaven onto my laptop. They were written, rewritten, worked out on stage by a local artist. Corey is prone to self-deprecation, so I was heartened to hear little of that in this episode. These days, Corey Brandon sounds proud of his work, trusting of his talent, and hopeful about the songs ahead. He is certainly not alone. One last note. For his mix, Corey sent me 11 songs. I also close every mix by asking the guests about a song of theirs I love, so 12 total. We only covered eight in the hour, but you can hear the full mix on Spotify. That link and the full track list are also in this episode's liner notes. Here's the mix. Corey Brandon. Well, this is a special conversation and one that I've been looking forward to for a long time. I think listeners know that I'm a gigantic Corey Brandon fan. I think if you've entered my life over the last decade plus, musically or personally, you've heard me talk about Corey Brandon's songs. Um, Corey, you're one of my favorite artists of all time, full stop. And I really appreciate you coming in today. I've gotten to know you a little over a long period of time. And uh, I've really been anxious to talk songs with you, so I appreciate it. Nah, thanks for having me, Chris. Appreciate it. So, um, let's go ahead and dive into your mix, which you sent me a couple days ago, and it is an absolute murderer's row of singer-songwriter fare and uh, unsurprisingly great lyrics abound. Um, I want to start with Warren Zevon's Desperados Under the Eaves. And I'm trying to find a girl who understands me, but except in dreams you're never really free. Don't the sun look angry at me? Yeah, yeah. I, I just was rattling off some songs when you asked, and uh, that's just some things that popped into my head, you know. Um, Obviously, Zivon, and uh, for me, that one uh, is one of the first I always think about. Um, Why that one? Uh, it's still it's got the things you expect from Zivon. You know, it's sardonic. You know, mm-hmm. he's, if California slides into the ocean like the mystics and statistics say it will, right? You know, it's got all that, um, and it's got the uh, it's got the heft of it, and then it has this gorgeous outro where you know he's he's listening to the air conditioner hum right and the the air conditioner he starts singing the air conditioner humming and it right. becomes this grand anthem <laughs> of you know it's basically and to me it sounds like he's doing look away you know he's doing right right dixieland like a lost sort of um never existed california right um and he's sing- he's singing those words. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, like a way down Gower Avenue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just I always love his mix of high and low and crass and and and, and uh, transcendental. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, yeah. Zevon does it for me. Well, I mean, that whole song's an interesting contrast because it's he's describing a what sounds like a lonely and hostile place, right? But then he also says, "Heaven help, heaven help the ones who, uh, who leave," and he's listening to the air conditioner hum, but all of a sudden it becomes very grandiose. So for some reason to me, when I hear it, it sounds like 
this, he's finding great beauty in a thing that other people might not. Yeah. And there's also the, uh, the, the double help the ones who leave, you know, you don't know what situation he's left to be finding himself drinking margaritas right. and, uh, and the, the dump of a hotel. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, there's, he has, um, he has a thing where he does um, these great concise images, but leaves them context free a lot of times. Mm. Um, well, one of my favorite moves of all time in a song is in uh, poor, poor, pitiful me when he's, you know, uh, when he meets the waitress and takes her back to the hotel and she asks him to beat her. And he says, I don't want to talk about it. He brings something up in a song, brings a whole weird situation up in the song, just go, I don't want to talk about it. And then goes into the chorus. <laughs> it's like one of the best moves of a songwriter of all time. <laughs> I noticed that Linda Ronstadt left that out of her version wisely. But um, yeah, it, there's a lot of things he, he starts to talk about and mm -hmm. then doesn't uh, spell it out. I, I enjoy that in a songwriter. I've heard you cover Excitable Boy. So I know that you're a big Zevon fan from way back. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a particularly messed up song. I right. always, always feel like apologizing for it at the end, but yeah, it's uh well, that's it's great. satire. It is, you know, that's the thing. But people, you know, we're not. Um, it's not an American art form, satire. It's not uh, when we're readily, you know, we're not the French. Oh, that's where it came from. Mm. No, I just mean uh, I. Who knows? But I just mean that's not our, one of our strong suits is recognizing satire. I think that's right. We want a very. Um, Matter of fact, reading of things and, uh, you know, all the way to Randy Newman's short people. I was I'm, just thinking about that. Like, yeah. Come on, really? Yeah. Like, you're going to get upset about that? Yeah. He picked the thing that is most representative of a silly thing to right. have a prejudice against <laughs> and writing a song that's parroting prejudice. Right. Know? No, it's it's true. I was actually going on a Randy Newman deep dive lately, um, oh, Redneck man. specifically. Have you heard the new one? The no, new I haven't yet. Oh, God, no. it's so good. No. It's so good. He's got this song uh, where it's uh, uh, Kennedy talking to his brother, and his brother's talking about uh, you know the Russians in Cuba, and he's like, I, I don't want to be involved with that. And he's like, oh, but there is this girl there, this singer. Have you heard Celia Cruz? And he starts singing, and it goes into this, you know... <laughs> Caribbean music and he's like he's like yeah we're gonna go save Celia Cruz he's like come on Bobby just like the Rough Riders you know it's <laughs> it's unbelievable but it, you know his uh, some of those things can feel I imagine for a casual listener which I don't know if Randy Newman has any casual listeners yeah, when, when there's question. not a cartoon on the screen um, you know it can feel like um, just tossed off like there's no point sometimes right. and you know he, he does everything he can to add to that you right. know and, uh, but there, I mean, for anyone with half a brain, it takes half a second. It's like, oh, okay, there mm. it is. You know, all uh, the personal selfish motivation behind almost every political right. um, posturing. Yeah. Anyway, we go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, this is great. I was, uh, we were talking about Warren Zevon's song. How much has he impacted your own songwriting? Because moments like the one that you brought up with the air conditioner hums, he starts singing along the humming and then it leads to this gorgeous, grandiose kind of coda at the end. That kind of reminds me of the moment in your song Jericho where the jukebox, kick, jukebox kicks in and it kind of transports you for a moment. Um, what have you learned from him as a songwriter? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I never really with anyone um, say, oh, I could use this. Mm. Um, probably should. But I, I'm sure, I, you know, I'm 
I'm very porous, so it uh, I absorb all of it, I guess. Um, Ziva, I'm just attracted to Zevon's. Uh, um, how much of a misanthrope he is, hmm. and um, uh, how generous his spirit is hmm. um, for life. You know, I find that a, a very str- I, a lot of the songwriters that I dig. There's a there's a strong um, uh, disconnect between the appeal. There's a uh, there's a, a dialogue, you know, in their actual character, you know, and 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 their who they are. Mm. Um, I find that that appeals to me. I, I, I've noticed that. Um, it, because, I mean, I have that. that. Right. That's just natural for me. Um, I tend to overthink stuff. But, um, but yeah, I, in my DNA. Right. It's in there. And, uh, but his, his particular brand of uh, salty poetry. Right. You know, it, it appeals to me. Right. Well, I mean, in terms of how it's impacted you and where you come from naturally, um, I would say that there's no finer salesman of bad ideas in lyrics than you. <laughs> And it comes up time and time and time again. You're very persuasive, or your characters in the songs are very persuasive uh, when having a bad idea and maybe acting it out. Um, do you see the negative as a positive? Um, hmm, uh, not really, but I don't. I don't see. <laughs> yeah. Um, wow, that one's a difficult one. Um, I don't see anything. Um, clear cut like mm. that you know i don't it's all gray um sure. and you know i don't uh i i'm sure if i thought it out i have a code i live by <laughs> um but i as a what i what interests me um with some of these characters is um the sliding goalpost um right the, the uh the code that you can't see um that that maybe their actions are not um easily justified on the surface and right. um, i like i like it when someone's got their back against the wall or um or when you know when someone's misunderstood right that's um that's an interesting point for me to start right um from salty poetry to poetry nonetheless, but this happens to be a little bit more sweet. John Prine's You Got Gold. Cause you got gold Gold inside of you You got gold This is off The Missing Years, 1991, it came out. Um, Obviously, John Prine has uh, been a huge influence on your work. Uh, Your career started with John Prine. I'd say the biggest influence. The biggest one. Yeah, the first time that I ever heard an artist, and I was like, well, I wasn't even writing then. Um, But, you know, I was... I started playing songs out in uh, the Daily Planet and stuff, you know, just doing songwriter nights. And I, I was terrified and hated my voice and everything. 
Um, but I was writing, but I wasn't writing songs. And then I, I heard John Bryan, it just, nothing had ever clicked for me like that. Um, that um, deceptive, deceptively simple, um, uh, plain spoken right. uh, poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, very, there was a very um, breezy right. thing to it. And then he gets you laughing and then he just sticks you. Sticks you with a knife. Right. Um, that was, and it's a very, um, I couldn't be more different than John Bryan as a human. He's like a, he's a walking saint. You I know? was going to ask he, about he, that. Speaking of generous, generosity of spirit. I mean, mm-hmm. the man just, he radiates it. Um, and I'm not like that. Um, <laughs> and I don't have a Midwestern droll sensibility. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not my humor. Right. Um, it's not the, but he is, there's a, how would you characterize your humor then? Oh, um, gallows humor. No, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, gothic. Um, sure. Yeah, I don't know. There's a, you know, there's that um, sort of defeated Southern uh, fatalistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. I'm sure there's a strain of that in there. Um, but uh, actually mine, it's, have you seen the scene in uh, on the Peck and Paul movie uh, when they're about to go back down into Mexico to rescue one of their guys that was left back there, and they know they're all going to die? And it's uh, oh, who was the actor? He was so great. Um, Oaks, I think his last okay. name was. Um, but he's just there, and uh, they're about to go, and he's like, he knows he's going to die, you know, and he's just sort of never done anything worth a damn in his life, and he's just like, yeah, why not? <laughs> you know, that's I think that's my kind of humor. Oh uh, yeah. But uh John Prine stuff is um there's a there's not there's a childlike um thing about it. Mm-hmm. Um not in the Shell Silverstein way where it's uh, you know, using the childlike thing to be perverse. Right. There's a, there's a genuine like um a wide eyed uh Good hard stare at the world. I like I like John's music quite a bit. Right. Well, yeah. that, that definitely comes through. I mean, his uh, some of your earliest comparisons in press were John Prine comparisons, um, and you said that you have had the occasion to get to know him a little bit over the years. Do you talk to him? Oh no. I mean, I've just met. You know, I met. Uh, I left him alone. The, the, when I first moved to Nashville, I'd see him everywhere. Mm-hmm. He, he one time I went to see uh, Capote and I was standing in line figuring out what movie I wanted to see and I, was, I heard somebody say excuse me can we get by you I was like yeah sure sure and I knew I was going to see John Brown when I looked up you just knew the voice and he's like I'll have two for Capote and uh, so I, I get I was like I'll have one for Capote and I go and I uh, standing behind him in line and I didn't want any any refreshments I just wanted to hear what he ordered he goes <laughs> up and he's like I'll have some Twizzlers. <laughs> So great, and then he got stopped by a fan, and I went and sat in the uh, in the movie, and uh, and then he comes in with his wife and sits down about eight seats away from me. There's nobody else in the theater, you know. Somebody came in later, but and then so I'm watching, trying to watch Capote, good movie, very engaging, and every once in a while I'll just hear John Prine laughing at the darkest stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So hard to watch the movie, but no, I I did get to meet him um, on his 70th birthday actually after he'd played the Ryman, uh, my old friend Amanda Shire. Sure. Um, she had opened up for him 
and uh, she got me into the little birthday party and gave him gave me an introduction. And it turned out he knew some of the music, and he was it was unbelievable. It was like a dream come true. He talked to me for like an hour. Oh my god, it was crazy. I had all these people around, and it, you know, it was his birthday, and then then it was late, and, I, and uh, it's like three, and I was exhausted. I wanted to go home, and I'm like. Well, I can't leave before the 70-year-old man leaves. Right. I have to at least outlast my hero. Right. <clears throat> and so, uh, but no, he's everything you uh, uh, you would think he was. But I think the reason we, we talk so long is because, and uh, as far as that song goes, sure. um, I mentioned uh, that I knew Keith, Keith Sykes. Right. And he, Keith co-wrote that right. song with John. And uh, I think it's a testament to um, how singular John is and, and how weird both of the men are that I don't even know who to uh, credit the line. Life is a blessing. It's a delicatessen. <laughs> delicatessen I mean, yeah. It's like, I can see either of them writing that line. Um, but yeah, that's a, that song um, is just so simple and gorgeous. And then for no reason when it's, you know, it's been doing the chorus the whole time. You've got gold, gold mm-hmm. inside of you. I got some gold inside of me too. Right. You know, it's like, yeah, there's a little self-worth right at the end. But then at the end of the song, for no reason, out of nowhere, the chorus changes to, you got wheels turning inside of you. It's just a simple change. Right. Why is it there? I mean, it's gorgeous. It, it, it is, yeah. And there's something moving about, what are we doing now? I love this. You know, it, it's there's no reason to do it. There's no lead in. Right. And uh, yeah. It's great. Just free associating. Um, I think you're right. It is kind of context free. Uh, but the line, I'm leaving a lot for the little I got, but you know a lot of little will do. A lot of to little will do. I want to tattoo it on my forehead. Is a perfect summation of being a touring musician, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Kind of a Lodi, stuck in Lodi thing. Right. Um, yeah. I'm, but, but again, that maybe we do have the same kind of sense of humor because you know a lot of little will do is, you know, might as well be just, yeah, covered on my stone. <laughs> um yeah, I, I love I love that line. You're right about him. Uh, I the last time I was in Nashville two months ago, I stopped in for breakfast. I guess in his neighborhood, and he just happened to be there. But it was clearly he was clearly a regular at this spot. It was right next to the Melrose, the bowling alley, mm-hmm. and had the same waitress. Like they clearly had a rapport. And everything that comes out of his mouth sounds like it belongs in a John Prine song. Like yeah, I just basically was ten feet away, eavesdropping like a very impolite person. But like, yeah, I saw him a couple of times in the meet and three there in town. I just wouldn't. I never went. Out. I just, you know, I just yeah. didn't want to be that person. It's right. Like, what are you going to say? <laughs> and I've met, you know, some of my heroes. I've, I got crazy. You know, I met over the years randomly. You know, L.A. and whatever. I've met. I met Prince and Dylan. I met Bowie, like these kind of things, you know? And I, it's like, these are crazy things. I was never as, you know, knock naked as when I met John, you know? I have to ask what happened with Dylan. The Dylan, it was just a thing. I, whatever. It's a, my, um, I was at maybe the second Bonnery or something. Okay. And uh, my old publicist, uh, she managed some artists and he, we were hanging out with, um, uh, Dave Matthews and Dave Matthews took us back there with Jeff Tweedy or something to meet Dylan right after he got off stage. It okay. comes off, you know, and it's just standing around in a circle. You know? oh, okay. It's just some nods. That's it. And then I, heard, then I had to listen to him talk uh, to Dave Matthews about real estate for about 10 minutes. <laughs> and I heard the words in escrow come out of Bob Dylan's mouth. And uh, my, my little songwriter heart was just crushed. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, but, you know, what are they going to talk about? D- Dylan lives on the road. Right. You know? Of course, he's got a crash pad every you know 
escrowing in the wind. Um, switching gears, I want to ask you about Joni Mitchell's A Case of You. This song is making its second second appearance. Uh, Jeff Powell also had this song in his mix. No kidding. Yeah. Well, Susan does a great version of it, doesn't she? I think I've heard Susan play that. One. I'm sure she does, but he didn't even mention that. Oh, Jeff, come on now. <laughs> a Susan Marshall song was on his mix, okay. but yeah, yeah. He, he didn't bring up the cover. Yeah, he would have been in super trouble if he didn't at least throw one of us. <laughs> oh, she's so great. Um, do you remember the first time you heard this song? Um, <clears throat> no. I mean, it would have been. Uh, late it would have been my late teens before i got into that album um yeah and that's just i, I love i'm a huge i mean she's for me she's like top three songwriters of all time I, I love joni mitchell's work um i love it when she tries to throw you off with her um restless experimentation um <laughs> there are a lot of um there are a lot of artists who you have to sort of listen through the arrangement sometimes. Some right. of it gets real dated. Um, I think that might be one of my hurdles with her. Yeah. Still. What's with it, for a lot of people, it yeah. is with a lot of artists. There are a lot of people that can't, you know, can't listen to some uh, 80s Leonard Cohen. Or, right. Or, you know, there's, there's some of this stuff that will just throw them. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I appreciate, um, obviously, I, I appreciate a song that you can play on a kazoo and it holds up you know but i do i appreciate arrangements too um i'm a, I'm a big you know i don't listen intently to 80s genesis you know i just like <laughs> i like pop arrangements and i like studio choices and, and i that appeals to me from a different direction mm -hmm. but Joni stuff is uh um like probably most of the people i mentioned just very singular uh, right. a lot of you have um, a certain kind of greatness, uh, like Sam Cooke, that inspires lesser Sam Cooks. Mm -hmm. You know, many lesser Sam Cooks. Right. Um, and then you have a, a certain type of greatness, like Joni's, where people are like, "I'm not even going there. Right. I can't get anywhere near that. That is singular. That's, that's true. You know, um, all the way. She's the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, all the way to playing it, singing it. You know the 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 uh, sheer strangeness of the musical uh, aspect of it, and then the uh, just the raw power of the lyrics, um, mm -hmm. really, really fantastic. Well, this is one of the best opening verses of all time, I think. Oh yeah, yeah. And I mean, it it jumped out and grabbed me like it was the first time I heard it this morning. Just going back and listening to it, I was like, Jesus Christ, I forgot how good this song. Yeah, is. yeah, yeah. And then, um, and then she's. He's just drawing a map of Canada on a on a coaster, and then there's there's this there's the sort of tangents in, mm -hmm. in a song that someone else would if they had a chorus like I could drink a case of you and I'd still be on my feet. A right. lot of artists are going to try and write the dark end of the street. Right. They're going to try to make that song as um, universal as possible. Right. And Joni didn't do that. Joni is. 
that song is, you know, completely her. Right. And, uh, and benefits from it. Sometimes you can do that and it can be distracting or um, right. lessen the song. Every detail in the song um, makes it more strange and uh, it draws you in. It doesn't, it's not a, oh, what? oh, there's a flourish or there's this. It's just, there's this scene and you're right there. Right. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. In my experience, the idiosyncrasies end up being the things that pull me in the most. It might, might, might not be the case for most listeners, but like when you just mentioned uh, Delicatessen. And John Prine's song, like that to me is the line that I always look forward to hearing the most. Yeah, yeah. Which is the strangest one. Yeah, and that is, I think a lot of people are like that, but some people aren't. Right. Some people are, can um, really put on the brakes right. when, they, when they're, yeah, I don't know, you know, what do I know? You know, but for me, yeah, I'm drawn to that. And, and not just um, strange for... Uh, jarring sake or or well this is a beautiful image you know but you can tell they've just stapled it onto the paper right um when it when it feels um resonant right yeah i mean that's actually something i wanted to ask you about with your own songwriting which is as someone who spends a lot of time in the singer songwriter world um it is very hard to find things that you've never heard before and i feel like as much as anyone you're constantly writing things that I've never heard before. Um, are you at war with cliche? It just seems like you really, really, really make a priority when you're writing of yeah. not repeating yourself or not putting something in there that anybody else could have written. I'm glad you noticed. Thank yeah. <laughs> you. Uh, well, no, I mean, I use cliche. I, I use cliche forms all the time. Um, for me, it's, um, it's a quick setup for... Uh, what the rules of the game we're playing here are. Right. When you hear a girl in a kind of bar, you already know the tropes and you know the expectations. So you can you don't have to establish the setting for a verse and a chorus before you change it in the second verse. Sure. You start there, you you can set it up in a line and then you can turn it on its head fast. Right. Um I find that some people don't like that. Um <laughs> messing with cliches. Um to or form cliched forms right. first course first, you know like that's those kind of things um it's not art to some people but there uh, there's an art to uh, there's a reason why we like um some of the structures uh that they exist for a physical reason there's uh, only so many times you can hear something repeated before you need to change there's mm -hmm. only so many times you can change before you need the repeat um <laughs> there and it's there's a there was a really, uh, did you read that book? Um, oh man, I forget what it was, but they were talking about this study of how they would, um, they would see how, how many times they could startle, it's such a strange experiment, how many times they could startle a lab rat with a loud sound. Okay. <laughs> before they got acclimated to the sound and they needed to change it to the, another sound. Was this Coachella or? <laughs> I believe this was the first few Coachellas. Okay. And um, so then they changed up the stage arrangement. No, but, um, they found that they could startle um, a mouse so many times, and then they would have to change it, and then and then the the ratio worked out. And I'll skip it along, but the ratio worked out to basically A A B A A B C B, which is verse chorus verse <laughs> chorus bridge chorus. It's right. <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> like I rest my case. Yeah, oh, and my I, I'll have to give you the name of that book. It's somewhere in my. Audiobooks. I don't read anymore. I have people read to me now. It's, it's, okay. it's a very... Yeah. Um, 
No, a song like Chameleon Moon is a great example of where you, you kind of set up the expectation of the bar scene, but then you subvert it throughout. Yeah. Let me guess, kid, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, that's one of my favorites. Of And even that guy's advice is borderline sexist in the second right. thing, you know, but the, he still finds something to learn from the old crusty blowhard um, <laughs> that is ignoring all the other stuff. That's a, that was a tricky one. Do you... um? Do you just kind of compile these song ideas when you're on the road? Is this all just kind of things that you observe? Um, a lot of it comes from just doing it. A lot mm-hmm. of it comes from just um, having a, a small uh, piece of the puzzle. And uh, just from riding around, riding around a feeling. Mm-hmm. Or, or you're just really bypassing the intellect as much as possible. And... Uh, than editing the hell out of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I try to overwrite and I try to um, whittle. Okay. Yeah, but it's very, it's seldom that I say, um, I'm going to write this song about this. Right. Um, a lot of times I'll see a song becoming something and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And then sometimes I'll I'll follow it and it'll, I'll be like, oh God, where are we going? <laughs> this alley doesn't look safe. <laughs> I think I remember you telling me one time, though, that often you discover what the song wants to be in that journey. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I don't know. I mean, I think that's just, I think I've, I've read a lot of, uh, a lot of writers are like that. Yeah. Um, like novelists. So, like, well, I have a, a jumping off place, but, and I have no idea what this, I didn't know it was going to be this. Right. You know, I think, I think, I think most people do that. It's, I mean, all creativity is a, Oh, let me grab this. Let me grab this. Right. And these things. Oh, this is an interesting juxtaposition against this. Oh, now that I have this, it's missing this. Or oh, I want to set this up. I have this is very dark. I want to set this up. Uh, or here's my jewel. You know what? What, what ring am I going to set this in right. to really make the stone pop? You I know? see. And so the the rest of it will pre- present itself um, either as a uh, set up or you know, um, strengthening um, Mm -hmm. the structure of the thing so it can stand up. Right. I've just mixed about 30 metaphors. (laughs) (laughs) Or written another song. Um, Let's talk about Belle and Sebastian. Uh, You put on your mix. Dear Catastrophe Waitress, which is off of Dear Catastrophe Waitress, came out in 2003. Dear Catastrophe Girlfriend I'm sorry is bleeding you'll soon be leaving this town to the clowns who worship no one but themselves no one but themselves I've also seen you cover Piazza New York Catcher. Oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot so, I used to do that. So this is an album that clearly means a lot to you. I loved that record when it came out. I always liked Bell and Sebastian. It was a, it's a very uh, very catty. Um, <laughs> and it's very different than, you know, any... Um, I'm attracted to that. It's something that's very, uh, very strange to me. Um, and... His writing is just fantastic. Melodically, it's interesting. And that was the album for me when they became uh, musically formidable. It, it, the songs were arranged 
just so great. I, I can listen to that record all the time. Um, but yeah, that that one's great, and it's you know he's working with the pretty standard thing in that song. The, the waitress, her life sucks. She's a waitress, <laughs> you know, and my life sucked when I was a waitress. Um, <laughs> and it's like, and basically in the end is you know. It, you're going to blow them all to the wall when you they realize what you've been working for. Mm. That's the, you know, he's just leading up straight to that song. But on the way there, he's like, I'm sorry if he hit you with a full can of Coke. Right. <laughs> it's no joke. And then it's like, it's almost like this Batman, you know, James Bond music. Your face is bleeding. <laughs> you know, it's this epic um, thing about a trivial, uh, menial job. Um, but that's what it feels like when you're trapped in that and you have um, aspirations beyond that. Um, and and kind of when you walk out and quit that place, right? that's kind of the music you should be hearing in your head. It right. should be like, I think it should be that song, just the instrumental of it. I've been in that moment, but I didn't know the song then. Yeah, I wish I had. Yeah, it was there waiting for you. Right. Um, well, I mean, given when it came out and your attachment to the album, I have to ask, did it? influence prettiest waitress in memphis oh i don't know um when did that album come out 2003 yeah my timeline's all off for everything uh prettiest waitress in memphis no probably not um that was when i was still working at um slim's downtown okay um i left i was in la by 2003 oh wow okay yeah so i think i'd already written it okay yeah Happy coincidence, then. Yeah, go figure. I mean, there there are a lot of great waitress songs. Right. To be fair, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, the this album is. You mentioned the arrangements uh, musically. It's you kind of hear them in full bloom all of a sudden. The mix is also brought to you by our featured sponsor, Shangri-La Records. Open seven days a week at 1916 Madison Avenue in the heart of Midtown Memphis. Shangri-La recently celebrated 30 years of slinging music from Memphis, the Delta region, and beyond. The shop is stacked with killer records from classic labels like Stax, Sun, Hyde, Chess, Motown, Atlantic, and Blue Note, to modern indie labels like Secretly Canadian, Matador, Fat Possum, Light in the Attic, Third Man, and many more. You can find them on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or shop online and sign up for the store newsletter at shangri.com to keep up with events and sales. I'm Josh Spickler. I'm the host of The Permanent Record here on the OAM Network. We're a podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can all work together to make it better for everyone. You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and right here on the OAMnetwork.com. I did want to ask you, compared to some of the other stuff that's on your mix, which we have a lot of singer-songwriters in here, um, are there any songs in here that kind of represent something that you really admire because you feel like it's 100% something you can't do? It's just like, wow. Um, I mean, pretty much every one. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. Let me see. I don't, I don't know what I mentioned the other day. It really was just off the top of my head some things that I love. Um, 100% can't do. Yeah, uh, a lot of these narratives I I, I try my hand at. Um, yeah, maybe uh, Gillian Welch, "That Dream a Highway." Okay, that song probably.
let's talk about that one. What yeah. is it about it that um, you feel like you can't do? It is a, uh, she is an, another artist that does the whole thing. Her voice is the sound of what she's singing. It right. is lonesome and haunting and gorgeous. And uh, I mean, I just can't do that. My <laughs> voice doesn't do that. But also that song is, uh, you know, it's a 10, 11 minute epic. I think 14. Um, is it 14? <laughs> it's a 14. It goes by so fast. Right. Um, it's, uh, it is a dream. And the song is a dream. And it hypnotizes you. The mm. listening of it. It's, it sounds like what she's saying, what she's saying makes it happen. Mm. It, it occurs, you know. Um, and the, the, the refrain is just, I dream the highway back to you. And, uh, but she's dreaming through the history of this country. She's dreaming through uh, these various experiences. And she's, you know, she, it's not, there's no, it's not a dream sequence. It's, uh, it's like an invocation kind of thing. Right. Um, and there is a level of uh, sincerity and uh, intent there that I'm not capable of sustaining for three and a half minutes, let alone <laughs> 14 minutes. Couldn't do it. I could not do it. Um, I'm too much of a spaz. Mm. Uh, I, I would lack the confidence in my own ability to... Um, I mean, could you imagine singing a 14-minute song that doesn't change much? No. It, it, it's, you know, it's like a, a trance blues, you know. It's, it's, it's a thing that works cumulatively. Trance with, was the word that kept popping yeah, up in yeah. my head, yeah. With the repetition of it, 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 it works the same way. Like RL's music works on your body. It's a, it doesn't use rhythm like RL does, but it's a trance. Right. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I could never do that in a million years. I, I would never trust it. Mm. Not to, hmm. I would trust the music. I would trust that um, I could maybe write that, maybe. But I would never trust myself to sing it and mm. deliver it. It, I mean, it would be. It would take a lot of trust. I feel self conscious any time a song lasts more than four minutes. Basically. Yeah, yeah. I have to have. Um, a lot of times I whittle them down from like 10 minute songs, you know, mm. but that, and uh, there has to be a reason for me um, if it's going long. I mean, the, the slow tempo ones go longer. Right. But um, if there's going to be, yeah, I'm a big, um, ut uh, utilitarian, you know, I, right. it, it has to work. It has to, um, there's a reason for me for the arrangements. Right. Well, yeah, I wanted to ask you about what's your approach in the studio because your song, your albums, album to album, but also song to song, the production can vary. It it truly seems like whatever the song demands yeah. is kind of what you're executing. That's the idea. Um, and I try not to, um, I mean, I have all the arrangements in my head and, and I write them, you know, when you hear it go seven, eight, and then go bar six, four here. They're, that's how they're written. Um, and then I, I surround myself with, um, I've always joked that um, my formula for for live and for uh, recording is a over-qualified, under-prepared musician. So I don't <laughs> like to give them a lot of heads up. I'll give them some roughs just right before and try and record fast and get it, get it down. And it doesn't work. I and mean, it doesn't, every album I've ever made is a 
severe compromise. Um, I've never once had, um, maybe with Mutt. Okay. Um, and that's the one that you produced? Uh, yeah, I actually produced um, a lot of them with, uh, well, like w- ones w- that I did with Jeff. Mm-hmm. Jeff and I were working together on uh, the early stuff and um, produced the last one myself. But I, I could not have made it without, I could never have made any of my records without the engineers. Right. Um, I, you know, I'm talking about colors and things like this, you know, and it's like, I'm trying, you know, I'm not good with, oh, I need the, uh, I want this sort of, uh, you know, thing going on vocally that's on this track, you know, I can't go, oh, I need, you know, more 6.5K to make this, I can, I can more and more do it. Um, but that's a world that I I try not to go down into because I know I'll get lost in there. Um, you mentioned compromise. What did what did you mean? With money and time. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just a flat out. Okay. You know, there's only so much money. Right. Even when I'm when I'm on a record label and things like that, it's just it's just always rushing. Um, Ronnie Russell, um, mm-hmm. who I was uh, with Magic. He, I when I left Magic and uh, I was nowhere. Ronnie actually funded uh, Mutt, and uh, it allowed me to take my time in a studio in uh, San Francisco. Of course, I was sleeping upstairs in the studio and, and showering in uh, a sink for a month and like staying there and I never left the studio and I got probably got a little crazy. But, oh um, but he allowed me to get the closest to I've ever had to enacting a, a vision okay. um, for a record. And it, it's, you know, it's still flawed. I know where all the skeletons are buried and um, I would have liked uh, some more time with some of the things, but, you know. Uh, well, I, th- I think that shows in the album and it might be my favorite collection of, of songs of yours. Um, it's really some of your finest work. Thanks. Appreciate that. And we'll touch on Thank one of Ronnie. those. <laughs> <laughs> we'll touch on one of those songs here in a minute. Um, I want to ask you about a different one for now. This is Copper Canteen by James McMurtry. We grew up hard And our children don't know what that means We turned into our parents Before we were out of our teens Through a series of Chevys and Fords The occasional spin round the floor at the Copper when did you discover James McMurtry's music? Um, you know, I opened a show for James before I knew his music. Okay. Um, and uh, just floored me, mm. you know. One of my favorite curmudgeons. Um, <laughs> and uh, then I got into it. And and some of it, you know, it's, it's all caliber work. Some of it... Um, the Oklahoma and the Texasness of some of it is is a little too focused on that for me here okay. and there, but um, but when he's writing these characters, um, and he he works from a regional standpoint, he he, he doesn't stick to one, mm-hmm. but um, it very much informs it, and he's got you know that sort of I wouldn't even say a novelistic eye. He's got a short story writer eye. Right. He's, he can condense it and. Mm-hmm. Uh, put a human in, in uh, you know, two adjectives and a verb, you know. Right, right. I mean, this, uh, 
this is almost like a little novella this song um, yeah it's it's stunning i'd never heard it before I and that whole record is so good yeah, this this absolutely blew me away. I couldn't believe how good this song is. Um, please, if you're listening right now, stop what you're doing and go listen to uh, Copper Canteen by James McMurtry. Uh, one of the best lyrics I've heard in a long time. Um, yeah, the other heavy hitter on there for me was a song called South Dakota. Okay. Yeah, uh, just, I mean, you know, I'd watch those movies. Um, those Both of those songs are full-length movies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Easily. When you hear something this good from another lyricist who... Uh, is this sharp? Does it inspire you to write? It's funny that you mentioned that. Okay. When I heard that record, I called up uh, I, I, Jason Isbell, who I sure. think is one of the finest songwriters working today. But we're buddies. Yeah, and I, right. I called. Yeah, he's all right. He's all right. <laughs> I called Jason up. I was like, have you heard this new McMurtry? He's like, yeah. He's like, we got to up our game. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, no, it, for me, it's totally inspiring. Okay. Um, no, no, I'm not intimidated in the least. Yeah. I, I, I'm hungry. Mm-hmm. You know, I crave that stuff. Yeah. I, um, yeah, I, and I don't listen to a lot of songwriting music for that point. I just come away, you know, empty. Right. A lot of it. And, um, you know, a lot of it is, uh, oh man, I heard a great quote, uh, by uh, Tyler Childers, really, really nice guy. And he, he's like, uh, talking about country music has made the props the play. And I was like, oh, that's it. Man. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, that's really great. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I find that with a lot of songwriter stuff. There's all these, um, yeah, there's a lot of brick a brack. Right. And I'm just like, come on, give me something. Right. You know, Hearing a song like this also is inspiring to me. It feels like a muscle that's atrophied is all of a sudden getting exercised again, you know? Yeah, and when I find it, um, when I go out and hear music, um, and I don't need it that often because it's really hard to get, but every, at least a couple times a year, I'll need to have my face peeled off. Yeah. By somebody. And it was actually Gillian Welch this last year when they came out of GPAC. And I was just like, yep, there it is again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, I need to... Uh, yeah, I need to have that happen. So, would you say there's kind of a friendly competition? I know that your um, colleagues, friends with Jason Isbell, for example, y'all around the same age range, micro generation of songwriters. Um, so, you do kind of pay attention to what the others doing. Oh, we got an upper game right now. Uh, oh, I mean that was all in jest. Sure. More just me calling with my appreciation of that record. <laughs> like, oh my god, right? Um, uh, I don't exactly. I um, it's dangerous. Uh, for me personally, just because how I'm made and I and how my little C career has worked out, you know, it was it came out of the gate with some publicity from a great publicist that I didn't need or deserve, and I got pop publicity. So it looks like oh, this kid had a shot, you know, did Letterman and all these, and those were great, those were coups, you know, it was great. But I never should have had that because there was no tour, there was no anything lined up, there was nothing. Okay, and so. Um, then when you start from scratch after that, doing a, a, a blue collar, you know, I'm a working songwriter. Right. You know? And so when you start touring and doing those things and, and really working the road um, without the whole uh, infrastructure that looks like it's there kind right. of thing, um, it was like everything stopped. And it didn't just stop for a little bit. It stopped for, uh, you know, I don't know, what, 2003 to... 
2010. And right. I, like it stopped where so I had to. Between 12 songs and Mutt was what, almost five years maybe? Yeah. Something like that? Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and between that first record and 12 songs was quite a bit. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, it wasn't for lack of songs. Right. And so I have a uh, thing where I can't play a comparison game because sure. there's a there's a bitterness that I have to uh, burn off of myself, which is uh, just in general, I think it's a good way to be with anything. You can't compare yourself to other people and their careers and their things. Um, but when I'm uh, sad sacking it, you know, and I let that get the better of me, that's down there. Sure. And so I have to stay away from it. I have to burn that off. So I, I can't really do that. Um, but when I see someone doing killer work and getting recognized for it, which I see so seldom. Right. Being, and when I see somebody getting recognized for quality work, like Jason did. Right, right. Or, um, you know, anything where I see that being recognized, that is the most heartening thing. Sure. You know, that's like, that's steel. For right. me, it's like yes, okay, <laughs> and so um, yeah, you know, makes that makes me want to put my head down and work. Right. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people have that relationship whenever you get recognized, um, and with your music and following your career. I, you mentioned, you said uh, press that you maybe didn't deserve when the hell you say mm-hmm. came out. I mean, I, I, what I mean by that, I'm not, you know, I'm not like, uh, I'm not trying to, uh, you know. That's not how that sounds. What I what I mean is it was pop press. Right. Okay. The publicist I had at the time did Moby and did right. like, okay. you know, Jack Johnson and, right. and things like that. And so it was um it was big right. magazine press. Right. And uh that that's they did they weren't doing songwriter stuff then at the time. So right. it looked like there was this massive thing going on, you know. <laughs> and uh I and I, I wouldn't take any of it back. Probably kept my shirt on a Rolling Stone. But <laughs> other than that, I, yeah. Uh, uh, Did you catch any shit for that in Mississippi? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I've got people that still have that uh, stuck up on their refrigerator <laughs> at their place when I come over. Um, yeah, that was a good one. Um, but uh, it just was not the way to um, start. Yeah, it was just. Guns a blazing, but right, just not aiming at anything. Well, Memphis doesn't know anything about that particular story. No big stars from here or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, let's uh, let's shift gears, and I want to ask you about the faces, ooh la la. I was a little happily surprised to see this on your mix. Um, why Why does this song resonate so much? Oh, yeah. Again, you know, these things are just off the top of my head. I was just thinking of songs that I, I love. Um, maybe that's one that's, you know, I love it when a song is, uh, you know, like two spoonsful of sugar. So mm-hmm. the medicine goes down. That song is just, you can listen to it with, you know, after a lobotomy. And right. Enjoy it, you know. <laughs> And but it's fantastic, right? You know, it's like he just starts off pitting his, you know, sexist granddad, <laughs> talking to women's ways, right? You know, he's just like, 
whatever grant that right but uh there's like there's actual real things in those verses right and then what a great chorus yeah know? yeah i mean it i think a lot of other songs have tried to say with a lot more space what that song's basically saying with that chorus you know? yeah absolutely yeah and uh, i wish that i knew uh sorry uh, my brain is right out of the side of my head but what uh of course, for me, the more resonant is the inversion of that, which was the Seeger who knew who he took it from. But uh, I wish I didn't know now what I didn't know then. That, oh, yeah. that one actually hits me a little harder, and I probably weep when that comes on. Right. But uh, who needs to weep? Ooh, la, la. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's always been a staple anytime I got to play with other people because it's just two chords. Anybody can join in. You yeah. Know? Um, but who's going to, you, you have to remember all the verses cause nobody will remember the verses. There's not a ton of them, but they're, yeah, that's true. I remember the verses. Um, but yeah, the, I guess there's three, but there's, yeah, there's no repetition and they're a little tricky. So yeah, yeah, yeah. you, you got to know them. Yeah, for sure. Um, another one that's, uh, just kind of lighter fare, maybe deceptively. So, um, Creedence Clearwater Revival's Lodi. Which I don't know if I'd call it light. <laughs> I've been living it for many, many years. Well, I guess that's that's my first question. Um, this song sounds relatively light. Like so much, so much of their stuff sounds really easy listening, and then the lyrics are taking you in a different direction. Yeah, I enjoy that. Okay, yeah, very much, um, very much. There's the, that's the draw <clears throat> of them to, for me. Um, the uh, Simple, stripped down rhythms. Again, with the trust thing, just trusting that's going to work. Mm. You know, um, they could have piled on all these things, but it wouldn't have been the interplay of the simple guitar lines with the rhythms. Right. Um, but the the lyric of that one just resonates with me, you know. Okay. Um, you know, it's just it's saying if I had a dollar, you know, for every time I had to sit here and play my songs to all these drunks you know? <laughs> right. he's like i would already be gone right uh, and he's not going and you know what it's not leaving right and it's uh but it's that sort of fatalistic humor that's in that i mean it's funny it is it's funny yeah. that song is um despondent and hilarious to me <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i love it um yeah there's us i love green so much did you grow up listening to them was that oh, something yeah. you heard in the house oh yeah okay. well you know the actual music there wasn't a lot of music in the house um there was church music um the old man listened to a lot of gospel quartets and okay. stuff um but the records uh we only had um, help by the beatles mad dogs and englishman joe cocker and um uh, in retrospect a very formative record for me arlo guthrie's uh, alice's restaurant massacre oh wow i listened to that record over and over and over oh, and over and over um but yeah, the, there was exposure to music. My old man was a drummer and his father was a fiddle player and his father's father was a fiddle player. And my, my father's uh, sister sang and his brother played. Um, musical family, but um, not a lot of exposure to specific like types of music. I, I was left on my own, but luckily, you know, I was on my own as a suburban little hood rat there in Mississippi, but there was MTV. Right. The radio was amazing. You know, um, even Top 40 was amazing. 
you know, if you look at uh, 1982, 83, 84, 85, and look at the top 40 artists, right? they're all very, couldn't be any more different from each other. Right. Couldn't be any more diverse. Um, and then I got whatever um, the hood rat down the street gave me, and that's where I got, you know, uh, SOD and DRI and then Minor Threat. Oh, wow, and okay. Then, and then, you know, I was all drawn to Sabbath and then, probably hair metal mm. <laughs> and then uh you know and then appetite for destruction came out and that's all i listened to for a year there you go <laughs> and break the little uh little orange tipped headphones i had you know they have, had this thing on it right and i would break them and i would uh, have the walkman in my jean jacket and i would uh, run one of them up my sleeve so i could lay on my on my hand in uh history class and listen to my welcome to the jungle <laughs> yeah uh, I heard somebody tweeting about that the other day or whatever, and they were like, I want to watch you bleed. I was like, I don't feel very welcome to this jungle. <laughs> Is that when you started picking up guitar, too? Were you learning those songs? No, um, I, let's see. I started playing when I was 13. Um, my old man got me guitar early, but I didn't, uh, I didn't have any interest in it. But 13. Okay. Um, so what are we talking? Yeah. That yeah. made it spot on. Yeah. 87, I would think. Okay. Um, yeah, I was definitely learning those songs. I knew that album note for note. Wow. Um, and all the early Metallica and stuff like that. I, uh, the drummer in the band that I was in, because I played guitar for anybody that had me, and uh, we played a lot of Sabbath. I've, I've said that before, but because we had a killer drummer and I was an okay guitar player. But uh, his, uh, his name's Ian, Ian Brown. And uh, between him and his old man, that was actually, now that I'm thinking about it, that was pretty formative too. Because this old man had all the, the tall and the Uriah heat. Oh, wow. And, uh, and just, you know, 70s, all the span of the classic stuff and the country and the obscure stuff. Mm. Yeah, I'd go down the rabbit hole with that. Um, man, whole summer of my life just, it's funny how that stuff's kind of stuck away in drawers. And right. You just open a drawer and it's like all still there. Right. I just remembered so many things. I can't even remember what happened last week. <laughs> yeah, memories from when I was like six years old are the reason I can't do calculus now. It's just taking up real estate in my brain. I can't do anything with. Um, so much RAM. <laughs> right. No, I think uh, CCR was some of the earliest stuff that I connected with listening to with my dad. He was a huge Credence fan. Yeah. So um, those are my earliest memories of Credence was just being in his car. And he just, between that and Paul Simon and Bob Dylan, it was one of those three. All oh the time. man, I wish I'd been exposed all that early. Yeah, and that it was there. Uh, I don't know. My old man, I just he was great. We just didn't really talk about some of those things. But then I'd find out later that he made my mom miss her prom so he could go see Led Zeppelin. And I'm just like, how are you gonna not tell me that? <laughs> oh my God. I, you know, she'd hear my mom's uh, Robert Plant impression. She's oh. got a pretty good one. Oh my gosh! Yeah, just randomly. I've never heard it. My wife was. She was like, I was just sitting there, and all of a sudden, Peggy was like, yeah, it made me miss my prom for that guy that sings like, and just <laughs> imagine what she sang like, I don't know. God. I mean, I guess they probably had the same range earlier plant. Yeah. I don't know how he did that. Um, well, Corey, I end every episode by asking the guest about a song of theirs that I admire, and that's especially hard with you. Um, your music has followed me through basically my entire adult life, and um, I really love so many of your songs. Uh, I did want to ask you about one that I feel like I haven't heard you talk about that much before and one that this might say more about me than it should, but uh, 
I want to ask you about the free fall. This is off Mutt, came out in 2012. Truth be told, all that we saw was something to hold through the free fall. Um, I've heard you say that this is a song about empty sex. Um, do you remember where you were, what you were doing around the time you wrote this song? <laughs> I mean, you know, they're all uh, uh, cumulative <laughs> things. They're not. I don't put down what I'm. You know, grab the pen in the middle of what I'm doing. But uh, <laughs> let's see. I wrote that. Uh, I think it was probably post LA. Okay. When I wrote that, maybe I was in Brooklyn. I can't remember. A lot of traveling on the road. Yeah, I mean, they're all there. Actually, I have a, quite a few empty, meaningless sex songs, but it's more of uh, I go through. Um, I have I've always, but especially uh, for the past twenty years or so, I've got some depression stuff and so a lot mm-hmm. of the uh things like that are ways of talking about that you know when you lose joy of obvious things that should be joy and things that are uh putting it in a physical uh way makes uh the abstract sort of bottomless thing uh gives it a tangible way to talk about it that makes sense so they're not all as straightforward as that but right yeah um one of the reasons I asked that question first is, um, is this one that kind of came to you quickly? Because I know that you said that you kind of overwrite and then mercilessly um, edit down, but this song feels so inspired to me. I remember hearing it for the first time. You played it live at uh, Mercy Lounge in Nashville. You're opening up for um, Lucero. This was years ago. And I just remember hearing it and going, God, that just, it sounds like just perfect, like fully realized moment of inspiration. Honestly, I don't remember. Um, I know I had the the opening, the moon is low enough to put your drinks on. I had mm-hmm. that already. Um, I don't remember how it came together. But yes, I think it, I mean, I think it was all, it wasn't one of those songs where I have pieces laying around and they come together after a year. Right. It was written in a, a period. It wasn't stretched out. Right. I don't think I let things stretch out back then. Um but I, I don't know if I, it just came out, you know. Sometimes the, you don't need a pole. The fish will just jump in the boat. I don't know <laughs> if that was one of them. Okay. Honestly. Yeah. Well, it also starts with a thing that you've mentioned a couple times in our conversation, which is kind of setting up the audience with a joke for something that's going to be a lot darker. Oh, yeah. You got to you gotta yeah. have the humor in there, you know. Um, and, and sometimes it can be like crap humor. The bridge of it is, you know, I've been drinking with those three chord girls, you know, exactly how they go. You know, everybody knows exactly how they go. I mean, it's like that film. It's just a crap joke almost. But um, but that's a great line. But in that setting, that's a great line. yeah, in that setting, it works. Um, yeah. Um, I don't know. But the joke that we start with, just to clue the audience in, is uh, I was fucked up as my haircut. You were wasting good perfume. But I mean, first of all, I've every time I have a fucked up haircut, which is unfortunately frequently, uh, I think about that. But second of all, or if I'm fucked up for that matter, um. But second of all, the second part of that line, that line alone, uh, you're wasting good perfume. That says, like, that's a song in and of itself. Um, I'm just in love with just that one couplet um, and in all of it. So the first time I heard that song was live and it kind of had a style to it 
that is different from what appears on the record. What was the process like in the studio making this one? Um, yeah, I mean, I'll just have, uh, oh, that was actually, uh, Tim, Tim Mooney, um, who engineered it. Um, he's a drummer for American music club. And, uh, that's one of the tracks he plays drums on. He only played drums on a couple of them. So that actually, that sort of feel of that is his a pretty distinctive style of playing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was largely informed by his, he has a, uh, Sort of like Roy Berry, uh, uh, who, you know, is a buddy, but it, he's also one of my favorite drummers. Right. It has that, um, it's, it, it'll define the groove and then it'll, it'll swim there a little bit. Right. You know, it'll give it, there's some give and take. Right. And, uh, and actually Tim plays like that. And uh, I, I thought he got that pretty well. It, the drum part, in the way that you're describing, it's a little bit, um, off kilter it almost gives that song the sense that you know you're stumbling around in the dark a little bit it it's comparable but not exactly the same as the drum part and spoke too soon it reminds me of it oh okay yeah yeah uh man but that wasn't that song that wasn't tim or roy was it no um that was brasso on that first record okay anthony brasso used to play in the paul tuckets okay great (laughs) um Yeah, that song, uh, my wife always makes fun of me that when the, I have so many songs with the moon in it. And I'm like, it's not my fault. It just it just shoved itself in the song. <laughs> it's just, but yeah, it just hangs there like the Death Star hung through my childhood. It's, it's just there. It's, uh, and, you know, I, um, it comes up a lot um, to where I pretty much have figured out what that is and how, why it comes up. And, uh, but it's funny uh, that she pointed it out, and then uh, I had, I realized after uh, she'd called me one night, and I was on the way back with Clem, uh, my son. You know Clem, sure. Um, and she's like, "Stop somewhere and see the moon with Clem." And I looked up, and she's you know, this big orange, huge thing. And I realized I hadn't actually stopped and looked at the moon for a long, long time. It's just uh, working its way into these songs over and over. And it's like, oh yeah, there's a depression. But uh, so I'm stopping, and I'm just like, we're sitting there, him and I, and just watching it for a long time. And I'm like, and like you know, I owe a lot for Rebecca, to Rebecca just for like, a breaking my balls about writing about the moon too much, but pointing out you don't actually look at the thing. You know, it's right. like, and just uh, that alone uh, in life, she's like, you know, don't just write it, right? You know, so. Right. Well, um, last question for you, Corey. Um, this song to me is one of my favorites of yours because it is so, it goes there. It's so fearless. It's so kind of unsparing. Um, it's a little, it's almost merciless, uh, at points. Um, but a lot of your songs do. You're, you're very unsparing of the people in your songs. Um, I think that you treat them with equal parts. Um, like unflinching reality, but also some kindness and generosity. Most, but when you're, most of them have it coming. <laughs> but when you're writing songs like this, do you do you ever hesitate to go there? Um, when they're, um, you know, I'm in all of them, but they're not all about me. But when they're closer, mm-hmm. uh, when they're closer to the bone, yeah, I, I, I'm tempted to chicken out. Yeah, and that's usually when I double down. Okay, yeah. and here we are. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. This has been an absolute pleasure and um thanks so much y'all can find uh cory brand on the road later this fall 
and it sounds like maybe we've got plenty of songs in the works at least for a new album. Yeah, yeah, we'll just figure out uh, what label and all the get all the ducks in a row. Perfect. Well, I can't wait to hear it. Thanks so much, Corey. Appreciate you, bro. There you have it. Thanks so much to Corey Brandon for being a phenomenal guest. My name is Chris Milam, and you can find me on social media easily, at Chris Milam or at Chris Milam Music. Feel free to drop me a line anytime, chris at chrismilam.com. I would love to hear what song means the most to you. Thanks so much to our presenting sponsor, Audible, and our featured sponsor, Shangri-La Records. The mix is produced by the OAM Network in Memphis, Tennessee, and is available on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Thanks again, y'all. See you next time. The Mix is an OAM Network production, available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and theoamnetwork.com. Hosted by Chris Milam, produced by Gil Worth, logo by Andy Crawford Andrus. The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. Theoamnetwork.com. Power to the podcast.